0: Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. Back in January, Peru suffered its worst-ever environmental disaster when almost 12,000 barrels of crude oil spilled out of a refinery into the Pacific Ocean just north of the capital, Lima. The spill ended up polluting dozens of beaches and covering an area the size of Paris, and it was just the latest in a long line of oil spills that have affected Latin America in recent decades. So, in today's episode, we've invited three experts from across the region to explain how oil spills happen, the damage they can cause, and how we can prevent them from happening again.
1: Welcome, everybody. My name is Andrea Chavarri. I am originally from Peru and I am part of the social media team at the Global Landscapes Forum. Uh, On behalf of the Youth and Landscapes Initiative and the Global Landscapes Forum, we welcome you all to today's GLF Live on the ecological toil of oil spills in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, so today we are very lucky to uh, be joined with uh, Marcos Orellana from Chile, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Toxics and Human Rights, um, Thais Herrero, a Brazilian journalist and communications advisor at the Instituto IEP, and Daniel Cáceres-Bartra, a Peruvian marine uh, conservationist and a representative of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance in Latin America. Um, we are very excited to start this conversation with three amazing speakers. Uh, so, welcome to everyone. And now to just uh kick things off, I wanted to start with asking to each one of you uh if you could briefly introduce yourselves. Uh so let's start with Thais. Uh, what is your story and how are you familiar with today's topic?
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks for the invitation for to be here. So I can share with you my experience during a ice too that we had in Brazil in 2019. And during that moment, I was um, a storyteller, as you say, or a, journal, a campaign journalist in Greenpeace Brazil. And I don't know if everyone here remember that story. It was uh, abroad, the, the news. But we had a, a ice in Brazil that uh, during six months, during... Um, the oil spill was not just like the liquid oil spill, the regular one we can see. The oil was coming, uh, was coming here as a crude oil, like in pieces. And it took like uh, one month for the government to start doing something. And the scenario was that the oil was arriving, and we didn't know the source. And people got so desperate; they started cleaning up the beaches with their own hands. And they they didn't know they didn't have proper equipment and it was like a social problem. People got sick because of the contact with oil and this oil spill reached 2,000 kilometers of the Brazilian coast and it reached 11 states in terms of extension. It was the worst environmental disaster in Brazil and because it affected a huge part of our coast, it affected a thousand beaches. And our economy, our tourism and seafood sales and the life of people. So that's the overview I can share with you.
1: Thank you, Thais. Uh, yeah, I think we all have uh, these type of stories of the disastrous uh, impact of oil spills in Latin America. So now let's uh, move on to, um, to Marcus. Uh, what, what about you?
3: Thank you, Andrea, and, and thank you uh, to the organizers of this program for the invitation. Uh, my name is Marcos Arellana and I am acting as the UN Special Rapporteur on Toxics and Human Rights. Uh, in that role, the, uh, the mandate that I hold that was conferred to me by the Human Rights Council is a, is a monitoring and reporting mandate. It is a function, it is a special procedure established by the United Nations Human Rights Council to uh, look at reality and report on it. And part of that reality as it relates to toxics concerns oil spills. And so the the mandate receives a significant amount of information from all quarters of the world regarding exposure to people of chemicals and and hazardous wastes. And very early on in in my tenure, I started in August, uh, 2020, uh, one of the first incidents, large incidents that took place was, uh, you may recall, the grounding of the vessel Wakashio off the coasts of the islands there, of Mauritius in, in, in Africa, in the Indian Ocean. Um, I conducted a country visit to uh, Mauritius to uh, take stock of that situation, uh, looking at uh, the rules of the law of the sea, as well as uh, the engagement between the government and civil society in dealing with uh, with the spill, uh, as well as the responsibilities of uh, of the companies uh, that were involved in, in in regards to the operations and, and the beneficial owners of of the vessel. Um, that that is an example. It's not the only example. Uh, There's information I've received, for example, from uh, Ecuador, which has led to intervention at the uh, Constitutional Court of Ecuador regarding an oil spill that has affected uh, dozens of indigenous communities uh, along the Napo uh, River. uh, And also in Peru, Uh, I conducted a visit uh, there uh, and uh, had the opportunity to to visit uh, Lot 192 uh, in in uh, close to the border with Ecuador in, in the Amazon that has suffered for years uh, of uh, oil spills. I could see with uh, with my own eyes uh, the contamination there and also speak to the um, to the fishers uh, in uh, in the region uh, of the central coast uh, after the spill of entenillas and hear from them testimonies about uh, loss of livelihoods and and, and the like uh, that's the uh, the work that the mandate does in terms of uh, hearing people hearing testimonies monitoring and then reporting that information to the united nations so that action uh, can be taken at the uh, at the, at every level that's relevant. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Marcos. And sounds like a very, very challenging job to take on. Um, now let's move on to Daniel. Uh, what about you?
4: Thank you, Andrea. And nice to see you, Thais and, and Marcos. Um, well, I'm Daniel Caceres. I'm 27 years old. I'm currently uh, part of the Peruvian delegation at the UNOC Summit. It's my fifth year being part of of a a u.n summit on regards to ocean we had our ocean and we had uh now the the main u.n ocean summit but well i'm a marine biologist i'm also advisor in the climate change commission in congress of peru um and well in peru in january 15th we had an oil spill a pretty bad oil spill where one of the u.n uh, reports like mentioned that the we need we had more than 32 institutions different institutions that were in charge of looking at this oil spill so after six months we still have not had a complete solution on the subject. And so we've been trying to focus mainly on helping the communities, helping evaluate the, the, do the, the environmental assessment. And well, that's mainly I think what, what I can do to introduce myself.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Daniel. And I'm sure we're gonna um, move on to more detail about the consequences and how these uh, catastrophes affect the livelihoods of the communities. Uh, all around the region. Uh, so now, uh, I think we're done with the, with the basics. Uh, so back to you, Daniel, uh, can you explain briefly what it means to have an oil spill?
4: Well, I'm going to explain on regards to the o- ocean side of o- oil spills that we had in Peru. We have more than 10 different States, um, in the coastal area, and we've had more than, uh, 60 oil spills just in the Northern part of Peru in the ocean. And for them, an oil spill for the communities in the northern parts, it's just a thing of frustration that they always go out and and try to explain, try to record, try to tell the government what's going on with oil spills, but there's never usually an attention of it. For the first time, we had a really big attention uh, on regards to ocean oil spills when it happened on January 15th on the Repsol oil spill in the front of the coast of Lima. It had to happen in front of the coast, in front of the the capital of, of Peru, to be able to understand what... Uh, a lack of, of, of not only regulation, but a lack of unification and a lack of, of knowledge that our government and institutions and the civil society in general have on regards to oil spill in Peru. something that one of the main biologists in Peru, Judy Hooker, was telling me. is like, it's crazy how we've had this really big oil spill in, in, in the capital of Lima. Um but we've had oil spills that big already in Peru before, in the northern part. But usually these oil spills just go with the current and just go out offshore, and people never even hear about them. And we don't talk about the ecological impacts. We don't talk about the, the, the impacts that it will have in long term. Well, it's usually open ocean. So there's a different condition to work to, to rec- for calculation and and for rehabilitation of the ocean. But still, there are, there are impacts that it generates on this. I think companies, um. And sadly, Felipe Cantuarias, who's the president of the Peruvian Society for, for Hydrocarbon, who is the head of all, all the, he, he said, like in the last MPA Congress that there was three years ago, that Peru, it was a lie that fishermen said that Peru really did not have oil spills. So even though everyone knew it was not true because we, there's pictures and everything, formally what he said, it's true, because usually when the government arrives to these oil spills, the current already moves them to different places. So he has the the backup of the government uh, assessment to really, so people can believe what he's saying on regards to this. And this thing is also on regards to ocean. It's pretty interesting because the main um, group that opposes the creation of marine protected areas, Peru did not, was not able to accomplish the 10% uh, of marine protected areas by 2020. Uh, We're still at less than 7%. The main group that opposes it is the, the oil lobby, the oil corporations, in regards to this. And one of the reasons um, they they don't don't want to do this is because they know that if there's an MPA and there's so much oil concessions in there, if there's an oil spill instead of MPA, there's already more monitoring measures and more fines that will be applied to that in in case of an oil spill. So I think that's, that's what it means to have an oil spill precisely specifically in the ocean in general.
1: Thank you so much for for giving that overview on the ocean ecosystems. Uh, now we can move on to Thais. Uh, maybe we can give us we can have a short overview about uh, the drivers and the causes of oil spills in Brazil uh, who who is responsible for for these um, events?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah so now they know they're responsible for that oil spill that happened, but it took two years for the federal investigation to conclude and that the crude oil that arrived here in Brazil, in 2019, was from a Greek-flagged ship. So the Brazilian government gave a fine for the company, the owners, the captain, and the, the ship's chief engineer. They were indicted for pollution crime and damage for conservation units. And the fine was over 35 million dollars. And this money was the same, kind of the same amount that the Brazilian government spent to clean up uh, the beach during that time. So, but the problem of that late discovery that took two years was that during the spill, we didn't know the source of the spill. We didn't know where the, the, the crude oil was coming from. And we were just seeing the crude oil arriving on the beach. Differently from what Danielle said about Peru, people didn't see, saw the, the, the crude oil. It was very visible and touchable. And that was the problem. So during six months, we we had different places are uh, receiving the oil, and even though with this money that the Brazilian government can receive, the impact is already done. So we couldn't do much during the, that moment. Exactly, and um,
1: I mean it's hard to try to pinpoint the exact location when there is not a an effective monitoring system that can follow up and actually identify the responsible institutions um, to, to track down the consequences and, and try to seek justice uh, from these uh, oil spills. Um, so when, when the Deepwater Horizon well operated by BP exploded and contaminated the Gulf of Mexico with at least uh, 650 million liters of crude oil in 2010, the whole world was shocked, and almost a decade later, a gas leak west of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula broke out of an underwater pipeline, uh, which caused bright flames to appear to boil up to the Gulf of Mexico surface. Um, High risk projects continue to be approved in the Latin American and Caribbean region, despite the long history of oil spills and other accidents. Um, Marcos, uh, you have a robust experience in human rights issues. Uh, It would be great if you can share with us a little bit, uh, what is the impact of these high-risk projects in the energy sector and of oil spills on the people and communities in the region?
3: Thank you, Andrea, I'd be be happy to do so. And if I could indulge uh, for a moment and uh, also react on on the previous question of, of drivers, because here what we're seeing as well is an addiction to oil in the global economy. Uh, the global economy, um, uh, countries in the world uh, that come together at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change have pledged to change direction, but the change is uh, is very slow. And what we're seeing is uh, is that this addiction to oil is leading to uh, to countries to um, continue to explore and authorize new exploitations of uh, of oil and gas and hydrocarbons, and and that is. Um, going to cause uh, uh, oil spills in the future because uh, uh th- these operations are not infallible humans fail machines fail materials fail uh systems fail and when they do there is impact on the environment and, and on human health um, i want to also reflect on on uh, since uh, daniel is in the and uh, the oceans conference in the in respect of the of the wakashio incident that i re- presented or talked about earlier. One of the problems there was a vessel that was traveling not along its sea lanes, but um, uh, if you've seen the map, uh, Mauritius is really in the middle of nowhere. So that vessel had nothing, no business to do. It was not calling on port. And so the rules of the law of the sea on freedom of navigation, they were elaborated centuries ago for a different world and they are not suitable for the world that we're living in today. Uh, The the authorities of coastal states to control navigation in uh, in their exclusive economic zone uh, needs to be strengthened uh, among other rules in order to prevent these kinds of disasters uh, from happening. And then the third point is is lack of supervision and and maintenance. We've seen uh, in the case of of Cunininko in Peru that for many years, the company that was involved was alleging that this was sabotage, that uh, oil spills were the result of sabotage. And we've seen this argument elsewhere. But the government investigations finally concluded that it wasn't sabotage, it was just plain lack of maintenance of the pipes. This is something that we also saw in Ecuador with the foreseeable impacts of the oil spill there a couple of years ago. Lack of maintenance, lack of infrastructure. Uh, and so all of that is leading to oil spills. And, and so now to your, questions, to your question, when they do occur, oil spills have a clear, direct, and devastating impact on the effective enjoyment of human rights. Just picture what it means to bathe every day with waters that are contaminated. We're talking about oil spills in the Amazon, for example, in rivers, that waters that are contaminated with heavy metals, such as mercury, such as lead, uh, such as other heavy metals. The knowledge of that, the you're being exposed to toxics that can make you sick, that can make your children sick. Um, That has also a mental health uh, uh, dimension. It's not just bathing, it's cooking, it's drinking. Indigenous communities that live in the region don't have access to other sources of drinking water. So day after day exposure, this is an impact on the right to food in respect of contaminated fish, for example in respect of the right to water, uh, but also in respect of the right to information, because I think we've all seen pictures, and Thais was talking about this, where people, regular people, will go and immerse themselves in the crude and try to clean up without equipment. So there's lack of information about the risks associated of exposure to hazardous substances. Uh, and even when uh, when medical monitoring and tests are conducted, people are often denied or refused, not given the uh, the results of, of those tests. So there's an access to information uh, there as well. And there's, if I could elaborate on two more points, one is the impact on physical integrity and health. Um, so exposure, To uh, substances that enter the human body and that without consent, and that are known to cause all kinds of serious health conditions, neurological damage, damage to the immune system, damage to the circulatory system, to other systems that um, make human life possible. So it's not just the right to health, right to physical integrity, the right to life. I want to also reflect on something that Thais said, the costs of cleanup. Uh, so who bears that cost, are fines sufficient? Well, when it comes to physical integrity, many of these impacts are irreversible. There's not possibility of cleanup. That, that is a, a, in a way a mirage that um, distracts attention from the real imperative of, uh, of prevention. And the last thing I want to say is is about the right to a clean and healthy environment. Uh, This right is included in most of the constitutions in Latin America and the Caribbean. It's uh, also a guarantee under the ESCASU agreement on environmental rights. It has been recognized at the global level by the UN Human Rights Council last October. And... We can see how human civilization depends on a healthy environment, livelihoods, infrastructure, knowledge, um, especially for indigenous cultures and peoples that are interrelated with the land, environment, and territories. The impacts of oil spills on those territories is a direct assault on the rights of those indigenous peoples. Thank you, Andrea.
1: Absolutely. And you raise such an important point of this uh, addiction of our global economy to oil and who uh, and which communities are directly affected by this addiction to oil. Uh, So now let's uh, move on to Thais. Um, So in addition to threatening the health and livelihoods of people, uh, the expansion of the oil industry also represents a direct challenge to seascapes and landscapes of the region. Uh, In your experience, what are the main impacts you have observed of oil spills on the local flora, fauna, and ecosystems?
2: Yeah, It's good to to talk after, Marcos, because I can't deeply in the story. So, um, as I said before, I was working for Greenpeace Brazil during that moment, and... When we realized the size of the the oil field, that the impact that, that was going on, we sent the team, I was working for the climate and energy campaign, uh, to see and to report what was going on. So as a journalist, I start talking to people, the fishermen, the women that were collecting crabs, and to see with my, my own eyes what was going on, to report. So what we saw there was impact and in many, many proportions. We saw impacts in fishes, turtles, and even dolphins, like the animals, the ecosystem. Um, Some researches were done during that period about seafood, and of course, they were contaminated, and there was also impact on the mangrove. That region in Brazil, we have a lot of mangroves, and mangroves are super important ecosystems for the the sea for the health of the sea and we saw many of the trees in the mangrove they were with oil and the oil sticks there so people didn't know how to clean up so mangroves are difficult to enter or and even difficult to be cleaned so people start breaking the the trunk of the trees to take off the the oil and and that part is was the part that we could see and we also had impact in the coral reefs. There are many coral reefs in that region. So the oil went down because it was uh, like heavy, the crude oil was in, in pieces. And we, we saw some researches in in the coral reefs and we found uh, the oil there. So it's important also to talk about how it impacted the local economy. So, and... Um, That people that work there, that live there, many of them are fishermen, as I said, women that collected credit. We call them marisqueiras here in Brazil. And they are very, um, there are many people also that depend on tourism. The Brazilian coast, the Brazilian beautiful beach depends on tourism. So after this spill, these people solve themselves with, with no work because no one wanted to eat the seafood. And also people are are avoiding to go to that places for a while. So it was also a social disaster. The impact we felt was for over a year for the disaster. And the sales dropped sharply. And even when things were getting back to normal, um, the COVID-19 arrived because they they still lasted for six months from August 2019 until March 2020. So, families took a long time to recover uh, the economy. They are even now trying to recover themselves. And also, it's important to say about the health impact, as Marco said. So, as many people cleaned up the beach and without no equipment, in the beginning, they didn't have gloves or masks. After a while, uh, the civil society organized it better about this. We had a lot of people uh, donating equipment and The government finally went there to to help and to do what they should do. But even though many people got intoxicated and we had the reports from the, the hospitals, the local hospitals, with many people with skin injuries, nausea, people vomiting with headaches and other impacts that we even know if they can have, like, I think this can be for a longer time, this health impact. So... That's why when we saw the brave people going to the beach to clean up, because there was an image that some people sell here, like, oh, sold here, sorry. Oh, the brave Brazilian people saving the environment, cleaning up the beaches. We, we, It was obvious that it would have impact on the health of them. So people are just desperate to have the the sea clean again, the beach clean again, and So they could work again and have the money, sell the fish, the seafood, and have the tourists back. So all these environmental impacts brought a lot of social and health impacts also.
1: Yeah, and we saw how people were, like you said, desperate to help, but they did not um, always have the right equipment to do so, and we didn't know the health consequences that they may face. Uh, Thank you, Thais. And uh, now I have uh, one more question for Marcos. Um, We we are now having an overview of the drivers and and impacts of oil spills. Um, But I can help to think that this is an important topic uh, if we want to pursue environmental justice. So what can we do? Uh, We recently celebrated 50 years of the 1972 Stockholm Declaration, which placed environmental issues at the forefront of the international discourse. Marcos, what is still missing to fully implement policies that reflect the close link between human and environmental rights?
3: Thanks, Andrea. That's a a big question, but as you rightly point out, uh, this year, uh, 2022, we're celebrating what is 50 years after the seminal U.S the conference on the human environment that took place in Stockholm in 1972. This was a watershed moment because it began to change the narrative and human awareness of our place in the planet. What it did was uh, prompt a process of uh, uh, what is called the environmental rights revolution, the transformation, the reform of national constitutions around the world for the integration of uh, environmental rights, the rights, the rights to a healthy environment. What it also did was uh, it catalyzed the creation of uh, environmental ministries, environmental commissions, so it was an institutionality and legal framework that was intended to uh, address the pollution, and uh, and especially in a transboundary setting that um, the conference had identified as a huge threat to our common environment. The seeds of Stockholm also were uh, in in the uh, convergence of environment and development. So the seeds of sustainable development, Also in in Stockholm, we see the presence of of human rights uh, discourse and and, uh, concepts. But at the end of the day, in the wake of Stockholm, what we see is legal reform that is oriented to command and control, where the state adopts legislation to reduce, control, limit pollution. And that has several weaknesses one is that the state is often captured by corporate interests lobbies that prevent action the state is also unfortunately captured or plagued by corruption and then uh, bribes against officials or legislators and, and Sometimes it's institutional corruption, so uh, the the policy preferences of legislators will move in accordance with who finances their campaigns. The political cycle uh, of states is also uh, not in tandem with what's needed to address uh, the environmental uh, threats that uh, the planet is facing. And so this model of reducing pollution has led to situations where what we see often is the legalization of environmental destruction, environmental law that legalizes what uh, is exposure, what is the creation of sacrifice zones. We see that not only in respect of oil spills, but, for example, on on pesticides. Um, I recently sent a, a letter to the brazilian government in regards to the poison package and that's being debated in the senate and how would this would expand the level of exposure in a legal way so this is what's happened after stockholm and what needs to change is for a rights based approach to be integrated into environmental law and multilateral environmental agreements. And that means putting information, putting participation, and especially putting accountability at the heart of the workings of environmental law and MEAs. It means not to reduce, but to prevent in order to ensure the right of everyone to live in a non-toxic environment.
1: Thank, Thank you. you so and much.
3: I'll need to sign off. Thank you for Thank the invitation. Uh, and uh, uh, good luck with the rest of the program.
1: Thank you so much, Marcos, for joining us. All right. Thank you, uh, Thais and Daniel, for joining us. Uh, still joining uh, this conversation. We still have a few more questions for you. Um, all right, so um, now many research point out that a big spill is almost impossible to contain because it's, it's physically impossible to mobilize the labor needed and, and current cleanup technologies in a timely fashion. Daniel, how can we better protect biomes that are threatened by a catastrophic oil spill?
4: Well, first of all, we need um, accountability, like Marco said. We need companies to know that when there's an oil spill, they have to be the first ones to act immediately. They have, they have to have protocols. I think in Peru, for example, they all already have protocols. The thing is, do they make them... Like, do they activate them immediately? I think that's the the, the thing that's happened, and that's the thing that happened in Repsol, for example. Repsol in Peru already had an oil spill in 2013, and they lied to the Peruvian government, thinking that no one was going to even eventually end up knowing what happened, but eventually they found out, and it was fine. They did the same thing currently. There was an oil spill, and they didn't alert until more than six hours afterwards. They didn't implement the buoys, the the buoys, to to control, they were still they in, and, and they didn't give all the information. The first day, was only seven barrels. Then it went more than thousand barrels, and it ended up being more than eleven. So the amount of barrels that were being filled wasn't even clear until like four days later. Um, and, and you can't do an assessment of, of the control without that and the necessary evaluation. Repsol had not done a um, a practice a capacitation in a couple of years before, and the excuse was pandemic. They did. So they were able to operate completely well, but they weren't doing to do the training on all all spill uh, control assessment in that case. And that's on one side to control the company's responsibility, and then the other one is the government. Uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, the UN said that there were thirty-two different institutions in Peru that are in charge of looking at the ocean. So one of them was like, "Oh, it's the other ministry." Other, like, "Oh no, it's the other ministry." So the other one was like, "Oh no, it's the coast guards so that have to see this." So there were so, the the functions were so over each other that there was no clear evaluation into this. For example, um, a, around the world there's an oil spill. First you have to do is thing you have to do is get a sample of the of the oil, so you can get a sample and you can know what type of oil it is. Because there's already so much studies on oils and ecological impact of the oil that saying oh this is an api something that we treat this is a medium, um, this is the, the ecological impact that this might actually have on the environment. And it's going to have a bigger impact maybe in base, a bigger impact in inshore areas, a bigger impact, it's going to, it's going to sink down fast. So we know about this. And there was no transparency on what type of oil it was until a couple like, a time later afterwards. And also, there was something that the government of Peru didn't assume in our case. Usually when there's an oil spill, first thing you have to do is close the fisheries. Close the fisheries, close the docks. Why? Because the propellers, the motors, become dispersers of the oil in, in the ocean. They, If you pull the boats keep on going out, they're going to keep on moving the oil around to different areas. But Peru was like, oh, no, we cannot affect the fishermen in that case. So we kept them going. We kept the, the docks open. We kept fishermen fishing out. And we focused more on doing that instead of focusing on the reparations that need to be done afterwards and the find that the is going to have to pay to repair this, you know, and... and in other countries, in oil spill, you pay more than a billion dollars if, if there's one if you don't control it. But in Peru, it's only thirty, like thirty million just for 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 recovery and assessment and clean and cleaning efforts on that. And still, we have no reparations. The fishermen in Peru still have not um have not haven't had the help that they they should have. It's been more than six months six months of the oil spill, and there are many fishermen that still have not even received a single dime from the government or from the company themselves. So that is absurd. First thing you have to do, you have to activate an economic packet over there because if not a community is going to go into a recession if you uh when they stop having economic activities every day. And you have to keep that communities dynamic so the economy can keep on growing and keep on moving stable just with different economic activities. But that also did not happen in this case.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Um and you raised an important issue, which is accountability. So in the case of this uh oil spill in Peru, you mentioned that 32 institutions where involved in one way or another uh, in dealing with the consequences of this oil spill. But however, the actual communities did not see any reparations uh, from this catastrophe. Um, Now, researchers and activists point out that governments given communities, uh, the ones that are most affected by catastrophic spill, um, they have the democratic right to say no to high risk projects, including timelines and publicly recognized that responding to a large oil spill is uh, half hazard, as responding to a large earthquake uh, and that are, there's no real techno fix. Um, is an important first step. Uh, so Thais, how do you think communities can be better equipped to defend their rights and seek justice after being affected by these types of ecological catastrophes?
2: Uh, well, thinking about what, what happened here in Brazil, that's terrible, like oil spill, and uh, that made it clear that the government, at least that government at that time, was zero prepared for a situation like that. Uh, we saw the civil society take action. So, first, people weren't thinking about their rights. Um, they were more thinking about how they could help to clean up the oil. And the, the government took 41 days to activate the, the protocol. As we didn't know the source of the oil, the only thing we could count on was the government's protocol. So after many months, I think it was three months later, the government gave some money for the families, for the fishermen families, who were depend on the, the clean sea, but the sea was not clean. So they made it like a social program. Uh, But it it didn't uh, cover all of the families. It was like a a problem. So countries have money and plans and protocols to act in emergency like that. But in our experience, the government just acted after many, many pressure from the media and the civil society and and NGOs like Greenpeace and many others that went to the places affected by the oil spill. And a lesson that we, we saw there is, to, is that to amplify the, what was going on, the local voices, and achieve the news, to have some support from the news and the civil society was important. So to pressure the government to take action. And as a journalist, I was there talking to people, making interviews, and to see that people and to amplify their voices, I think, was important. It was, and I was not the only one doing that. And To bring their voices is important so they can, we we could pressure the government to act. And even though the government took a long time to act properly, but I think we can count on uh, NGOs and media, it's it's something important.
1: Thank you so much, Thais. And I I wanna uh, ask you a follow-up question on that. Uh, What kind of actions could be taken to avoid future oil spills? Can citizens support those actions or or support the potentially affected communities. Um, Some actions we can do as citizens uh, to contribute to preventing future oil spills and support communities that are most affected.
2: Well, I think the only way to avoid an oil spill is to not drill for oil. And we said this here before, we always have risks. And even the best companies, they know there are risks on the operation. And I think we can do it to put pressure on governments and companies for the transition for clean energies. We are already living in a emer- climate emergency. We are seeing climate change happening and affecting our lives. And it will not stop until we change the way we produce energy, we consume things. And there are technologies beside us. We know how to do clean energies. And this is the transition that we need. And I think... It- We, we as a a society, we need to support that and walk towards the end of the oil age, and for the benefit of humanity and the ecosystems, is the only way to avoid oil spills again. That's such
1: a strong message, Thais. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Now, Daniel, uh, what is the message that you would offer to young people across? The Latin America and the Caribbean region, who are living through and witnessing these environmental catastrophes, and want to start taking actions for environmental justice.
4: Thank you, Andrea, and I really share what Tha- Thais mentioned um, on on regards to the oil. I think there's eventually, if we're talking about zero emission, there's eventually going to have to be a day where we're going to be like, okay, so we're going to keep the rest in the ground, right? Sadly, our economies are so super dependent on oil right now. After pandemic most of our recovery our economic recovery efforts, for example, in Peru, even though we compromised a COP last year, that we're going to reduce our emission, reduce oil consumption, more than 80% of our economic recovery plan includes fossil fuels. So there's actually no commitment to that. And sadly, we're given prioritizing the needs of, of, of the, the social needs in the environment without noticing that actually we need to prioritize the environment and adapt the social needs to our environmental needs because we're currently in a, in a, in a climate change crisis and in a biodiversity crisis. That's both of them. So it's really important that we understand that this climate change that's going on, these oil spills are going to eventually affect us directly and eventually could affect if we live or not in in the scenarios of the planet that we're living in. I really want to go back to the thing you mentioned in regards to the democratic rights. I shouldn't think, do we have democratic rights and options on, on this subject? I think that will be the question. And how do we include this in, in that? And also, we do need an, 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 a green transition. We need to reduce emissions. We need, But we also need to take into consideration other aspect that's going to be eventual problem for other people, which is the impacts of the mining industry that we'll have on regards to the green transition that we're going to have. For example, if the whole country of the United States transitions right now to, to green energy, it means he's going to have to have the size, uh, an area the size of France and Spain full of solar panels and all their coasts full of wind, um, windmills to create energy. That's the amount of energy consumption they have. So, we also need to talk about our energy, the growth, of energy, reduce demand of, of energy. And also, where are all these minerals coming from? Right now, one of the top topics at, at, at the UN Ocean Summit is deep sea mining. It's an activity that currently does not occur right now. But we have many of the companies that are going towards the green transition saying, "Well, the terrestrial resources are, are, are diminishing. The terrestrial resources are going to eventually go out, and there's more resource in the ocean. So it's going to affect ecosystems that we never have exploited and we don't even know about yet. So to be, um, we, we have a, a, a super huge opportunity of planification, organizing, and also in changing an assessment on regards to how we do concessions." either of oil concessions and either of mining concessions. What do we need? What we need to do is first, we need the consultation process to be before the concessions. In most of our Latin American countries, the concession gets given to a company and then the consultation process goes to the community. And there's no voting session. It's just an informative session. And if the community assists, if they sign their assistance, that means it's a check in for community consultation. No, this needs to be done before. Also, what we need to advocate as youth, we need to reduce contract periods usually contract periods could be given out for 40, 50 years because it says if you really want economic stability, if you want the investors to really feel comfortable investing in so much money, we need to give them long-term contracts. We need to give them long-term concessions on that. But no, we think we need to advocate for a different approach, which is we need concessions, five-year concessions. And we say, we'll be happy to give you five more years with an easy renewable contract. But if you have no single uh, oil spills, if You do respect the communities. If you do the maintenance work on that, if you do the reparations work on that, if you don't do this, then we don't give you five more years. So, if you want to keep your concession, if you want to make it economically viable, well, take the risk and do it. But we're going to have to give you less time in concession, periods, and contract. And if you want to keep on doing it for later, you have to accomplish and, and commit to all the commitments that we have. These are our resources. Most of the companies are not even from Peru. We're giving them basically and we're charging them really little interest on, on those resources. We have to be tougher. From what we give them and how we manage them in our territories.
1: Thanks so much, Daniel. And uh, what you mentioned about this being the right moment to seize the opportunity and to organize and involve communities uh, in the whole process. Uh, so, we have received a few uh, questions from the audience. And now, if we, you could give me just a couple more minutes, I have one question for each. Uh, so, Thais. Uh, Let's start with you. Um, How can we ensure that reparations actually reach the affected communities? Can you recall any examples where companies or governments have taken the initiative?
2: After the the spill, you mean? Like when the companies act after it's still?
1: I guess this question has uh, two parts, Uh, but... Is there any example that you can recall where the companies have taken an initiative to
2: to reach out to potentially affected communities, maybe? I'm sorry, I'm thinking right now. I don't remember. In in this case, in Brazil, the company, we even know the company. Just to to have this example. Here, this story is so weird that they didn't uh, reveal which company was that one. So we just know about the money that they need to say And here in Brazil, we know we don't have an, another uh, a few that was a few years ago. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking. You know, I don't remember anyone. Maybe no Danielle can help me. You know.
1: <laughs> no, but but thank you so much for attempting to answer this question. And I guess uh, your answer is very revealing as well to our audience. Uh, so one more general question uh, for Daniel: How can the general public support? in increasing accountability, or in any other aspect that you think the public can be, the general public can be involved in?
4: Well, the oil company has a really huge amount of budget. And this huge amount of budget instaurates and publishes the narrative we're gonna have. Right now there's an illusion that the amount of oil that we need is the one that we currently, we're gonna need it forever. There's an illusion that we need this amount of oil to keep on growing and making a world better, which is just an illusion a basic illusion that we can grow a world that's completely different. We can dispute this, but we're gonna have to dispute it with a really different alternative. We have to propose new ideas and we have to sell them out just as they are doing as well. We have to be involved in communication sectors, we have to be involved in education, and we also have to be involved in policy. Um, like, uh I've been involved in policy since I was really young. I'm the regional rep for SOA, Sustainable Ocean Alliance, which is the world's largest organization of, of young ocean leaders. And in Latin America, we have more than 1,600 leaders. And like they've asked me, why should we be involved in policy? I mean, it's like, well, if you're not going to be involved in policy, there's going to be someone in the oil sector already going to be involved in policy. So we really have to fight this narrative. If you don't get involved, they're going to be getting involved in it. And right now, we're in a period that not only do we need more laws in regards to environmental um, uh, protection, but I think Marco mentioned that right now we're legalizing the destruction of the environment. That is completely true. There are so many laws in place already from how that's been built for hundreds of years in, in some of our, our countries that we need to de-take these laws. We need to review them and we need to take them out and destroy some of these laws. So some of our policy work needs to be advocating on finding policy that's already in there in place and dismantling it not only building new proposals and new policies. And I think every young person should be involved in policy. And we do, and there's so many people destroying the environment now just for profit that some of us just need to focus on taking care of it. I think that will be like a message also that will give it a fine
1: Thank you, Danielle. What an inspiring message. I think we can close this dialogue on, on that. Uh, thanks again to everyone. Uh, who joined us. Thank you so much to the Global Landscapes Forum and the Youth and Landscapes Initiative, to our amazing audience around the world for tuning in and engaging in this discussion that spotlights the oil spills across Latin America and the Caribbean region. Um, And thank you to uh, Daniel, Thais, and Marcos for joining this inspiring discussion. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, Have a great day. Goodbye.
0: Join us again next week as we shift gears from Latin America to another crucially important region, Africa, and specifically how its growing ranks of young people will decide the future of its landscapes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a rating or write us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.